The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. So those everybody that's joined, I uh, appreciate those that uh, stuck around here, and hopefully we'll get some good momentum as we proceed. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour, Etienne de Marsac. The nice thing here is that every one of us have skin in the game. We're all running money, all in the arena, so to speak, that have our fair share of critics, but also know the uh, the thrill of victory and defeat, which is going back to that Roosevelt uh, quote. So Etienne, you and I, we did the space, I think, before Russia invaded Ukraine. A lot's changed since then, and I'm glad you're joining us. For those who are not familiar with who you are, your background, just talk about what you've done, uh, your experience in markets, different institutions that you've worked for, and what you're doing now. Sure. Um, very glad to join the, the Legal Lag Report and this interview. So my name is Jinder Massac. I'm working in Paris, managing a global macro farm here, which is a Quite a recent one. We launched it at the end of 2019. It's quite, it's a small one. We're we're actually managing something like 100 million euros. It's only the beginning of of a journey. My experience comes from various small or large companies, among which we can list small ones that you won't particularly know in, in, in in the US, but I've been working into one of the first hedge funds in, in the years, two Salvin, that was specialized on uh, volatility arbitrage. I've moved in bigger company, Natixis, French one that owns H2O. I've been working in London. I've joined Rothschild Investment Management Group. And then I decided in the years 2012, 2013 to move into Luxembourg, where I've been working for one of the biggest European hedge funds. Um, obviously, we all know that big is not beautiful. But however, working for the IKEA uh, group has been something extremely interesting for me. So for the American audience, the IKEA group is a retail one, a, a, a large furniture group that manages the wealth of the funders. And these guys, they hold 30 billion uh, euros invested on any kind of assets, equities, fixed incomes, credit, commodities, precious metals, volatility arbitrage, blah, blah, and so on. So this is where I gain a lot of uh, a lot of experience before moving into the EIB, so 
For those who um, don't know what the EIB is, EIB is the European Investment Bank. So it's a supranational bank managing uh, 600 billion euros. And this is of the ECB. So I've been working closely with ECB for a couple of years, dealing with subjects such as restructuring the debt, the, the Greek debt, or managing the first line of defense of the European Investment Bank. So I moved into that bank in the years 2015 until 2019, and then decided to come back to France to launch a global macro fund. The idea was at that time, so if you remember, end of 2018, we are already in a an environment of decreasing prices, bubble burst, rising volatility, blah, blah. And I thought that at that time, there was some space for a French hedge fund with a global macro process. And so I started beginning of the 2020 years, so right around the, uh, the COVID crisis. And until now, we were able, so there's a part of luck and a part of a lot of work, so work and luck, which at the end of the story have led to 25% of, of return in, in, in two years and 10% of return year to date. And that return is made of investments, global investments on equities, equities, FX, rates, credit, all kind of assets on the long and on the short side. So this is shortly the, the universe where I come from. And it's still the beginning of a story. And hopefully this story is going to last. All right. Let's focus on uh, process for a second, because I often find that people focus far too much on performance and not the process that gets you the performance. Yeah. Now, this environment, every process is presumably based on some kind of historical cause and effect, right? You've got to have your something to to you know base your research or your analysis on. So you've got to look at history to figure out what your process ultimately should be. But when you're in a cycle where it's very different that we haven't really seen in, in history, it, it seems to me it's challenging to figure out what the right process is unless you just stick to whatever worked in the past and and wait it out. Talk about your process and how uh, maybe this most recent environment has either altered or maybe made you believe more in it. All right. I think the main idea is here that uh, it repeats itself, but sometimes rhymes. I find a lot of comparable environment between this one and some crisis that I've already met before. By the way, I'm, I'm 50 year old and uh, I started on the financial market. In 1995, as a trainee, at that time, this is when the, the, the franc and all the European currencies were under attack. I've been managing some money, of course, between, during the dot-com bubble, during 11, 20, November 20, 20, November 2011, during Lehman, during the, the Greek and the debt European crisis, during subprimes, of course, during COVID and, and, and until now. And of course, experience is not is not uh, necessary to correctly manage money, but it it, it rhymes and it, it it helps a lot. And the the point here is never underestimate the strengths of momentum. And there are sometimes, and I think that is particularly the times where we are in right now, where momentum is having an effect, a bigger effect than valuation. So I'm spending a lot of time on momentum, much more 
than on valuation effect. That is to say, something can stay expensive, even if it's totally uh, irrational, or something can stay extremely cheap and cheaper, even if valuations does not kick in. So to come back to your question, how? What is exactly my process? Having worked a lot of uh, uh, a lot along with central banks and particularly the ECB, where by the way I've met all the people that that right now are responsible for directions, direction of assets. That is to say, I've met in the ECB Clarida, I've met Brenard, I've met Bullard, I've met Evans, I've met j Powell's, I've met uh, Draghi for sure. Part of my process is based on focusing on central banks mainly because these are the guys who are able to, to influence the direction of assets, right? So at the top of my investment process, there is central banks monitoring because they are in charge of monetary policy, they are in charge of macro prudential policy, that is to say risk and managing risk in the banking sector. And they are also in charge of long-term development, particularly the ECB, who spends a lot of time talking about development, energy transition. And so my approach is global, that is to say it's top-down and it starts by a large analysis of what central bank and central bankers say or what they don't say. And this is maybe we can make a stop here because a lot of the what I think is important is not about what these guys are saying, but what what they are not saying. I'm gonna take an example. On as far as inflation is concerned, we're facing a large monetary policy mistake, which is a mistake about not the length of inflation, but about its nature. And the Fed, the ECB, Bank of Japan, Bank of Canada, etc., they have spent a lot of time discussing about the length inflation that was supposed to be transitory, that was supposed to be based on based effects, but they totally missed for a lot of reasons that we can explain, but two main causes of inflation which are central banks that don't speak about energy transition because it's it's political. And within a central bank, you never criticize political decisions. So they have totally missed the impact and the effects of, because you don't criticize a guy who uh, hire you. You don't criticize your manager, whatever the industry you're working in. You don't criticize your manager. So you don't criticize political decisions. So the impact of the energy transition has been totally missed by central bankers globally, first point. And the second point, which is more an American point, is the Fed has been focusing on the supply effect and has totally missed the demand effect. And this is something that I've been working on a lot these last years. And this is why probably we were able, in February 2021, to start moving our portfolio towards infl- sticky inflation, as you would qualify it in, in, in the US. First point, my, my process is, is macro-driven. And secondly, since I'm not able as an asset manager to see everything, I, I only focus on assets that I know. So a small number of, of equities, a small, a small number of uh, derivatives, a small number of etc. And then it's a quantum mental approach using momentum and mean reversion models. 
so that I'm able to mitigate uh, or to increase my various exposures. So to put it in a nutshell, the way I'm making money is I'm not at all trying to allocate risk or money on asset classes because I think diversification is bullshit. Diversification is something that you need when everything collapses. When everything collapses, this is where or this is when diversification between asset classes no longer exists. So I don't believe it, it may be something a little bit shocking for the audience, but I don't believe in the, in, in the qualities of diversification, but I'm more managing a portfolio which is quite concentrated and concentrated uh, along with market themes. So I'm trying to identify themes, structural themes, transversal themes that are independent from any asset class move. So what type of themes have I been working on these last years? Sticky inflation, impact of energy transition, and tightening of financial conditions. These are my main three themes I've been working on. And to come back to your question about process, so I try to keep it simple stupid. I'm starting with what is the type of risk that I want to embark put into my portfolio. Risk is monitored using volatility measures or value-at-risk measures, first point. So what is the type of risk that I want to manage? And then I will allocate some the into a maximum of three themes. And these are the themes that I've just um, emphasized just before. Mantra as, a, as an asset manager are, I don't believe in diversification. I believe in an article, a correct articulation between market themes. First, first point. I don't believe in value at risk. I think value at risk is well, globally, it sucks. It's not the maximum loss that you are going to, to endure within a, a certain amount of a standard deviation. It's your minimum loss. Why is that? Because value at risk is a loss into within 95% of standard deviation, but it doesn't say a fucking thing about what you're going to lose in the 5% of fat tail. So I've been implementing a bank model that I've been using before in my previous uh, experiences, which is an expected shortfall model. An expected shortfall model is able to measure quite correctly what is going, your maximum drawdown? Your maximum drawdown, exactly. I'm using expected shortfall. I'm not working with value at risk. I don't believe in diversification. I believe in concentration. I think diversification is a hedge against ignorance. And this will lead me to the main point, which is how do I find a coherent, logical, long-term market themes that are going to behave quite well, whatever the environment. And this is where I'm trying to depict, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to identify cognitive bias. And I think cognitive biases are everywhere in our industry. And I'm happy to answer the question about that. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners, Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? 
or giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, and there's a lot there that I agree with. I'm with you on diversification. I keep using this line that it's all one big leveraged trade, right? It's all a variation of beta, and it's a fallacy to think that the more stocks or the more investments that correlate to each other, the the more diversified you are. And, and this year, a good example of that. Okay, so you, there's a lot to unpack there. The, I want to hear your thoughts on how this crisis, which I do think we're in now, compares against some of the crises that you've had experience with in the, in the past, in the sense that usually when it's a crisis, it's driven by some kind of deleveraging that happens in the financial sector or that happens in a major asset like housing, an overshoot that happens that then permeates into other asset classes. It seems to me that the crisis is actually central banks themselves. Let's talk about that and then talk about the distinctions here in terms of the ECB acting later than the Fed, because as much as everyone looks towards the Fed as the leader of most central banks and is critiquing the Fed for being late, the ECB is even later right, to responding. So let's riff on that for a bit. Okay. So indeed, it's a central bank-led crisis. But maybe we can come back from what is exactly a crisis. The, there is a crisis when the old world doesn't want to die. The new world is not able to born or cannot find conditions or enough conditions to born. So crisis when the old world doesn't want to die. And here I want to point, for instance, this very anchored, anchored belief by the deep belief, or there is no alternative belief, or a fear of missing out belief. This is the old world that has been engineered by 12 or 15 years of quantitative easings, Goldilocks, blah, blah, that were a, a correct response at that time to an environment absent of any kind of inflation. And the point is, inflation is blowing up this old world. So why is that? I think the, the, the good answer is between 19, in 1970s, in, in able to produce one point of GDP, you needed 1.5 point of that. These were globally the, the, the numbers in, in the 1970s. Depending on you are into, you're working in a, in a developed country, so say France, say the United States, say England, to produce one point of GDP, you rather need 3.5 of depth. So it's been a large and a long increase in the financialization of our markets. And as far as Japan is concerned, it's more six point of debt in order to produce one point of GDP. Here we're talking about leverage. We're talking about duration risk, which is now everywhere. And so many investors, particularly stock investors, equity investors, they don't really understand this duration infiltration. Duration is everywhere. Interest risk is everywhere. And when you buy a stock, you hold a large sensitivity to interest rates. So indeed, part of the crisis comes from the response from central banks to, stack, to secular stagnation, which was, okay, let's favor an environment in which we lower interest rates, we, we increase wealth effect through very low interest rates, we, we enable people 
to leverage their wealth through real estate and so on. And right now, inflation, which is a sticky inflation, is blowing up all this environment. First point. Second point about the difference between the ECB and, and, and the Fed. I, I think it's a time horizon difference. The ECB was born in, in, in the 1999 years in order to manage the euro. So the first target of the ECB is not really inflation, it's not really monetary policy, it's not really interest rates. It's first of all, managing the common currency. And this makes a large difference with, with the Fed, because as the, as the Americans say, the US dollar is your money, but it's our problem for Europeans, right? On the contrary, the euro is our money, but it's also our problem. This creates large time horizon differences and large action bias, biases between the Fed, between the FOMC, and between the ECB. The ECB is working on a very long time horizon. The ECB is trying to manage the stability of the Eurozone. The ECB first target is to manage fragmentation between countries, between Italy, between Spain, between Portugal, between France, between Germany. And the FOMC is managing homogeneous environment, homogeneous states, etc., and is more focused on inflation and is more focused on, on, on monetary policy than the ECB. Let me dig in a little bit on, on this. And back on my point about transition analysis, the ECB is, is pretty much focused on social stability, on eurozone stability, and is 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 okay to to is okay to you know, if ever they are they, they will between inflation and between social instability they will always choose social instability they will always try to uh, mitigate social instability i reckon that this is circular but at the end of it inflation and and, and social insecurity is something that that is circular and that and that is 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 correlated implicitly but explicitly, the ECB is targeting long-term development, long-term social stability, and the Eurozone as itself. And I think the Fed is more focused on the job market, inflation as a factor that is able to jeopardize growth, but don't really have the same targets here. Will the EU hold together? Let me quote, let me quote Draghi. The Euro is irreversible that between the years 1999 and today, there has been so many work along with fiscal policy, debt policy, bank regulation, bank regulation regime, etc., that reversing the EU project is something that is, that is honestly, I think, from a, a, a legal standpoint, from an amount of work standpoint, from a financial standpoint, this is something that is impossible. Now, what is possible and, and what will always be into question is one country willing to get out of the EU. So recently, we had a, a, a fantastic example, which is the UK. And honestly, I think that most English people I'm working with in Paris, in London, they have a strong 
regret to so, so Brexit has been an, an extraordinary miss and a big mistake. So why you can see right now large differences, large discrepancies between UK inflation, UK growth, and the European ones. There are large discrepancies which are not at all in favor in the UK. Honestly, I think the EU is not something that is, that is going to break up one day or another. However, particularly in the US, there will always be some pessimism about this project. But the project is moving on. The project has been is much more optimized right now than what it used to be before. Banks, for instance, that have been one of the shield, how do we say in English, one of the main weaknesses of the Eurozone, there has been we have we have witnessed a, a, a fantastic improvement in in the wealth of European banks. At the start of the Eurozone project, there were more banks in, for instance, than in, from an, ag- an, an aggregate point of view, in the rest of the EU. That is to say, the total amount of, of Dutch banks were bigger, way bigger, than the total amount of banks in, in the EU. This is no longer the case. There have been a, it has been a large concentration of, of banks uh, within the EU. Total core equity tier one, which used to be quite low, is now in average up 14%, which is a decent amount of, of equity for banks, and so on and so on. I think the, uh, the other part of your question is, is a doom loop. Are we, are we near a point where this interest rates rise and this inflation crisis will lead to a lot, large fragmentations in the Eurozone and another round of debt crisis, as that was the case in 2000s with the Greek case and with the Italian case. The point here is the Eurozone has launched through the Basel Committee. In, in, in the US, you have Dodd-Frank, uh, the Dodd-Frank regulation. In the Eurozone, we have the Basel Committee, they have launched an accountancy trick, which has many consequences on the banking sector. So what am I pointing? The, for a bank right now, for a European bank, holding European sovereign debt is no longer subject to mark-to-market loss. So where, if you are a bank or if you are an insurance company, you are allowed to, to hold uh, sovereign debt, so Italian debt, French debt, Portuguese debt, etc., blah, 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 blah. But you're no longer subject to mark-to-market. You're, you're, the accountancy trick is you're able to hold this within a, a hold-to-maturity accountancy basis. That is to say, through an accrued basis, no, no longer mark-to-market. So the doom loop that we used to speak a lot about in the years 2000 and the year 2012 is not longer sensing something that we can fear. And I think any solvency issue within the banking sector, the European banking sector, is, is going to be something quite contained and, and, and no longer systemic. About your question, Michael, and about how can we compare the, the present crisis with all the crises that we've met before. History history never repeats but sometimes rhymes. There are some compari- there are some points that we can compare and beside and however this crisis is totally different because this crisis aggregates and so many crises that we've seen before. It's a geopolitical one. So here I'm talking about Ukraine. It's 
a an energy one. And here, I think the war in Ukraine that trigger large moves and large squeeze on 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 commodities. We can compare it with the 1970s and the 1980s. The the subprime crisis is going to rhyme around the world through collateral loans obligations. So this is my main concern right now. I think collateral loan obligations, or CLOs, what we used to call CDOs back in the twenty, uh, back in during Lehman crisis. So right now, I think the crisis that we are facing is way more severe than all the different crises that we met before because it's an aggregation of all these crises. We need to sum up several different crises to understand correctly the one that we are going to face and which, by the way, I think will lead to a large deflation bath. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Okay, so in every crisis, there's opportunity, and we're not in the meat of it, but a lot of areas have already acted pretty violently. Are there any things that, from a mean, because you mentioned mean version, are there any areas which, right here, right now, look interesting from an intermediate to long-term perspective, or do you think that across the board still, there's a lot more uh, of an unwind that has to happen, right? Because if we go with the idea, for example, that maybe bonds overshot, maybe there's an opportunity there, maybe commodities overshot, talk about from your perspective, if it's one of those things where it's worth taking a look at some areas that may have gotten overdone so far. So here we're back on we're back on the idea of valuation, right? Thing is, valuation, which from a, a stock investors and equity investors are based on price earning ratios. I just think that price earning ratios doesn't mean affecting thing when forward guidance is diminishing, where guidance on earnings is has only started. When top line is going to be hurt by the by lower consumptions and by lower consumption from the American consumer, from the Chinese consumer, from the European consumer, and when earnings have only started to uh, to abate. So I'm not sure about the idea that you stated that there are some opportunities based on valuation. I think the the, the large meltdown has only started. It was engineered by higher financial conditions, higher financial conditions that we need to understand way uh, better. The Fed has only started its, its the hiking cycle. And if ever the hiking cycle a bit, uh, a little bit, they have merely started the quantitative tightening. I'm not sure on, on the long side that there are so many opportunities because I'm not so sure about valuations and I'm so sure about that the idea of comparing price earning ratio uh, now to what they used to be five years ago or 10 years ago make a lot of sense. My The view that I have on the micro environment is quite, it's quite gloomy to be, uh, to be perfectly honest. So 
what I would rather focus on is on asymmetry. There are some assets, there are some FX pairs, there are some uh, opportunities that may offer some asymmetry here. And in terms of domino effect, I think the last domino, one of the last domino that haven't moved quite a lot, uh, to say the least, right now, is the uh, Japan yen. I would trade the Japan yen on the long side right now because this is one of the last environment, the last place, the last geographical era where, where etc. are still on a quantitative easing bias environment, policy, blah, blah. But the devaluation of the yen is now jeopardizing a lot the stability of the industry. And if you focus on what the industry is saying, the Japanese industry, they are complaining about the volatility of the yen and complaining about the, the negative effects that the implicit devaluation has on the global economy. So I would rather trade the Japanese yen on the long side rather than on, on the short side, for instance. So selling the US dollar, and back into one of the questions that you asked at the beginning of this, of this interview, selling the US dollar versus buying the Japanese yen is something that I pretty much like here. Now, second point about commodities. Commodities has been a hedge for the global macro com- uh, community globally since middle of last year until now. And I think we are, we are facing the beginning of a, a lower growth impact on commodities. So I would rather trade commodities on the short side than on the long side. I'm spending a lot of time on, on crude stocks, on fuel stocks, on refinery stocks, blah, blah. And the demand effect is going to be, from my personal standpoint, the demand effect and the lower demand effect is going to have a bigger impact than the supply shock. So we, we may have met the peak in, in the commodity cycle. I don't know, I'm not really sure about the time horizon. But right now, I would better sell crude oil, copper, silver, etc. than buy right now because of the demand effect that is going to be bigger than the, than the supply shock. And let's talk about the demand effect from the European perspective. When you look at Germany's PPI, for example, it's straight up. How much do you expect from the European side things to slow down? Because again, everyone's focused on the US, but you, know, you can make an argument that Europe is probably already in a recession and they're feeling the pain much more than we are here in the States. Oh, I think you put it you completely right, Michael. The, the state of the U.S. is better than the state of the uh, European economy. The, the state of the European economy is way weaker than the American one. This is because the size of the Canadian boost has not been as big in, in Europe than as it has been the case in, in the U.S. The, uh, the Germany is already in recession. France is slowly converging towards zero zero growth and i think that the last figures and last data last that, that we got were pointing towards a, a, a zero growth a gdp zero growth on the the first the first quarter and and italy spain is are, are going to follow second 
as far as inflation is concerned, this is probably where they, there are some big differences between the U.S. And, and the Eurozone. Part of the inflation story in the U.S. has been caused by the demand side. Let's say one third of inflation, the 8 or 9% inflation in the U.S., was caused by an, an extremely high level of demand. This is not at all the case in, in, in the Eurozone, where 100% of inflation comes from imported inflation, right? So inflation in the, in the Eurozone is all about supply chain shock, is all about Ukraine, and has nothing to do with demand. So this is where probably managing inflation in Europe is, is probably simpler than in, in the US because these, in, this European inflation is totally imported. If come up with the idea that uh, some someday or another Chinese, China will stop jeopardizing COVID and we stop exporting inflation to, to Europe. If you come up with the idea that transportation disruptions are going to, to normalize, at some point, some basis effects should kick in. So what we're saying here in Europe and what the main research are are discussing about right now and, and so many clients I'm talking about, about these are Industries, corporate, blah, blah. They can see inflation abating between, between now and, 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 and July. So that is to say, and this is exactly, I think, what is, what GC is betting on. Just doing nothing, just waiting for base effect to kick in and wait for inflation to abate. For the US is a totally different story. Since but hold on, that, that, that abate, sorry, but that abating doesn't mean prices will go down, right? It just means that the pace would slow. Yeah, that means, okay, the price will remain at, an, 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 at a very high level, but will stop growing at the same pace, which is inflation. Inflation is a second derivative, right? So w- what concerns me is if this persists for a long time, you're going to have behavior changing and you're going to have societal unrest, maybe less so in the developed economies, but we're seeing it already in some of the emerging side of things. Is there anything that governments can do? Forget about the, the Fed and central banks. Is there anything that governments can do to try to maybe help ease the or shorten the length of time that this persists, right? Because stupidly here in the States, the response seems to be, let's give more money to alleviate gas price prices being high, which makes no sense because you're just keeping demand up there. But I'm curious from a policy perspective, what, what should governments themselves do to try to counter some of this? So I share your concern, Michael. The, the habit in Europe is to sponsor the the diminishing wealth effect. So that is to say, when fuel is going up, governments they they spend money and they send money to the people. We had this uh, gilet jaune crisis in in France. We had social unrest globally in Europe, which make politicians extremely sensitive to uh, this question, uh, this wealth subject, and this wealth effect. And this is my main concern. If ever government choose, and this is by the way exactly what we are seeing in France in Germany, in Spain, and uh, in Portugal, for instance, or in, even in Italy, for instance, governments right now are choosing to, are, are trying and are choosing to contain uh, social unrest. And this is a main concern because if you say, if you do that, you're not, the inflation is not going to abate. And this raises the question about the level function of prices. When prices rise, normally, the price is, is a, an adjustment variable. So normally, when a price arrive, when a price 
when the price of a, a product rises, either it increases supply because you have so many corporates uh, within this uh, ecosystem who see prices rise of a particular good, so they choose to increase the production of this good. But right now, when price, when you face a price increase, which is due to a, to a, a supply shock, you cannot marginally price and you cannot marginally produce more goods. So the level function of price, of the, the function of price is not doing the adjustment effect that it should do is in, in a normal economy. And on the top of it, if a government choose to sponsorize prices or to sponsorize wealth by paying checks, blah, blah, there's no way inflation is going to abate. This is it's extremely annoying right now, and, and which is my, my, my biggest concern right now, is are, inflation, are price increases going to abate if our governments choose paychecks to everybody? And the answer is clearly no. In that case, and, and it's part of my macro theme and my macro view, macro view in that case, we are facing some sp- uh, spiraling effects and inflation is going to stay for a long time. So at the uh, top of the hour, folks, everybody, make sure you follow Etienne uh, Dimersak, as you can tell, very knowledgeable and obviously has the credentials to back it up. Uh, Etienne, as always, I appreciate you joining. Uh, I always like listening to your viewpoints and everybody, hopefully I'll see you a little bit later. Thank you, Etienne. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.